here we are for another episode of the Product Experience Podcast. Are you excited? Yay! Of course I'm excited. Me too. And this week we get to chat to the lovely Mike Belsito, co-founder of the Product Collective and Industry Conference and co-host of the great Rocketship.fm podcast. We do. And the job of this episode is to stop you. What? Me, Randy? No, you, the listener, from procrastinating about how and when to use jobs to be done and how to get started with some of the basics. To be fair, I could use some of that advice too, and great advice it was. So let's crack on. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Mike, it's great to have you here on the podcast. Welcome. Yeah, it's really great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get stuck into the interview, please just give us a really quick intro into who you are for those that don't know you, of which I'm sure there's very few. (laughs) (laughs) No, sure, sure. So I'm a co-founder of Product Collective, uh, which is a community for product people. And uh, we've been doing this the last few years. I think it started in 2015. Um, We organize a conference called Industry the Product Conference. So that keeps us busy. We love getting together in person back in the days where there were in-person things, but now everything's virtual and that's been a lot of fun too. So aside from uh, Product Collective and Industry, I also now teach as an adjunct professor at Case Western Reserve University. I actually introduced their first undergraduate product management class, which has been a lot of fun. Um, and then I'm also co-host of Rocketship.fm, uh, which is another podcast, which I'm I'm always glad to be with other podcasters too. So thank you again <laughs> <Yay>. for having me. <laughs> Go podcast. And I always love hearing people's origin stories when it comes to product management, because it's usually some sort of crazy, well, I just kind of fell into it. So just really quickly, how did you get into product? I definitely fell into it, just like many of our (laughs) friends, right? Um, Yeah, so for me, I mean, I've been in early stage technology startup companies my whole career. So I I graduated from business school back in 2005 and joined a startup company as employee number one right out of the gate and was at that company for six years um, as it, I think when I left, it was like a $20 million company. We had a couple hundred employees. So it was a lot of fun for me to have a front row seat at what it takes to start and grow a scaling technology company. Um, And so after that, I had, there were startups that I founded, there were startups where I was an executive at. Um, What happened with one in particular, um, it it was a company that I co-founded. It was a company called eFuneral. And that company was acquired in 2014. But I I call it a fail sale. Like we did not go out and achieve what I wanted to achieve. And um, didn't accomplish our goals really, but but yeah, technically it was acquired, but it was the kind of acquisition where I needed to go find a job afterwards, not like, right. live on a beach <laughs> for a while. So um, I got, but I got recruited to be a 
director of product strategy at a ticketing technology company, basically like a Ticketmaster competitor. They had um, clients that were pro sports teams and college sports teams. And first of all, I remember very clearly Googling, what does a director of product strategy do? Because <laughs> uh, I had no idea. And I still think to this day, if I had, if I met 10 people with that title, they would give me 10 different answers as far as what they do. Uh, but I ended up, you know, talking to them about that role and not trying to convince them to not give it to me. But I remember saying, you know, th this sounds awesome, but I don't know if I'd be the perfect person for it. I, I never went to school for product management. And they said, oh, no, Mike, nobody went to school for product management. It'll be just fine. And so I took that job. But I was in my mind continuing to ask myself, like, but what happens when they figure out I don't know what I'm doing? And so <laughs> I was re reading books and blogs and um, you know, podcasts, listening to podcasts, that sort of thing. But I love learning through other people and whether that's, you know, just one-on-one -on -one meeting somebody for coffee um, or these days that would be Zooms um, or, you know, going to a conference and meeting people in the hallway and making new friends that way. And that's actually that sort of realization, that first product role, um, that's sort of what put the seedling in my mind to start product collective too, just, just because I didn't know what I was doing and just wanted to meet other product people that were like me, but that's how I got into product really. It was just sort of being recruited like that. And then, you know, not necessarily having the confidence that like, yes, this is the job for me, but taking it and sort of praying that I could figure it out. I think that's one of the things that's just so nice about the whole product community is we're all in that similar position of, no one's been kind of formally taught, really. Um, and we're kind of finding our way and just helping each other and stuff. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. And I'm sure Randy is too. <laughs> For sure. I, am, I, th I think it's very much more of an apprenticeship than something that can be taught. You can be taught a lot of theory, but until you fail a handful of times, you don't have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> totally. And and being in the company of people that accept failure too and you know are encouraging you to continue to try and experiment and fail when you need to and that I, luckily like I I feel like I've found my group when it comes to product people because that's that's what product people do, right? So um yeah, I those early days were were kind of even thinking back now it's still kind of scary for me a little bit, but uh, but in many ways I still feel like that. I'm always learning, that's for sure. Okay. And then, so jobs to be done. So you did a great talk at industry and I know you've done this at a few different places about jobs to be done and getting started. And this is like the perfect interview for me because I've read a lot about jobs to be done and I've kind of dabbled with it a little bit, but I don't really feel like I've got started with it. So mm. I was so excited when we were going to talk to you about this. I was like, yes, personal coaching interview on the, on the way. So um, let's just do a really quick kind of intro, though, into what Jobs To Be Done is. Like, how would you describe it to someone who hasn't come across it before? Yeah, I, you know, at the basic level, Jobs To Be Done is really a framework for understanding how and why people are buying and using our products. That's sort of at the at the simplest level how I would think about it. And how I like to think of it in a practical sense is that, you know, we're not simply, you know, just buying a product or, you know, subscribing to a product because of a feature or, you know, just kind of a couple simple use cases. We're really hiring that product to do a job, to really solve a problem that we have. 
And, you know, not altogether too different from, you know, if we were in some big corporation, executives might hire a consultant to solve a problem, you know, whatever that problem might be. They go out and say, yeah, let's let's get a consultant on the on the job here and we've got this problem. We want to solve it. That's kind of what we do for our products. We're hiring our products to solve these problems that we're experiencing. And so I think when you think of it in that context, it sort of changes how we think about our products in terms of competition, in terms of how we might design them. But yeah, at the core level, that's that's what I would think about. So a lot of people seem to think that Jobs You Done is this big imposing thing that you use as the framework for everything. So where's the actually the best place to get started with it? Yeah. I mean, and I will say, by the way, I think sometimes there's this like, um, I've seen it. I've seen like Twitter beefs about jobs be done. Like it is, you know, you should be using this for everything. And then some people say jobs be done makes, you know, it does not make sense in certain situations. And because of that, it's flawed. I always look at jobs be done. This is a tool. This is a tool that we can use. We have a lot of tools that we can use when we think about our product. So um, I think the more that we understand um, how to use it as a framework, it can it can help us. I think in terms of getting started with it, it's just understanding some of the basics. Um, you know, there's some key terms. I, you don't need to go out and understand an entire textbook about it, but I think it's good to like sort of familiarize ourselves with um, terms that we could talk about these like, what 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 is a push? What is a pull? Um, the anxiety, the inertia, or the struggling moment. Struggling moment is sort of a, a key component of jobs to be done. And understanding those things help when we do interviews. We actually interview our customers. And some people might ask, well, gosh, I already do user interviews. Like, isn't that the same thing? Um, and the answer is it might be if we're capturing the exact same things in user interview that we would seek out to capture in a jobs interview. And there might be some differences. So you might hear about it and, and realize if I tweaked the interviews I'm doing now, I, I might be able to actually call that a jobs to be done interview. But um, yeah, in terms of getting started, I think it's important to understand these basics and um, and then, you know, we can actually start to put it in use. I think the one thing that people get caught up on is thinking that you have to understand everything about it. You have to become the expert to actually get started. That's at least where I was. I, I know a few years back when I, you know, I've, I've even written about jobs to be done. You know, we've hosted speakers at our conference to talk about jobs to be done, but I just felt like I didn't know enough to actually put some of it in practice. I remember sharing that with Bob Mesta. Um, Bob is the president and CEO of the Rewired Group. Um, I think people kind of think of Bob as sort of an early pioneer of Jobs Be Done, one of the very early people that's collaborated with Clayton Christensen and, and others. And I remember sharing that with Bob and Bob's like, Mike, like, why? you know, why is it so complex to you? And the thing about Bob is he just keeps asking why and just keeps digging in, which is important when you're doing a Jobs You Done interview, by the way. That's, that's a different technique. <laughs> he, I, I'll tell you what, Bob Bob just does that in everyday life. I was at the speaker dinner and just hearing Bob talk to Peldy from the team at Balsamic and he's asking him questions about Peldy's iPhone and or whatever mobile device he had. I actually think it was, wasn't an iPhone. And all of a sudden, like the I'm like, Bob is giving Pel he's putting Peldy through a jobs be done interview. I don't think Peldy knows it. <laughs> he's just doing it right there live. Um, but it, what Bob said to me was, Hey, look, understanding the basics is kind of what's most important. Let me do, let me go over that with you. Let me interview customers with you. And, you know, and you can see that it's not about necessarily being an expert because just fair warning to everybody. I'm not a jobs be done expert. I, I'm just somebody that, again, was sort of um, hung up on actually putting it into use that I 
had this conversation with Bob and, and then ultimately started putting it in use, but we started seeing some um, benefits from it. So I, to answer the question again, Randy, I think it's just about understanding the basics and then trying it out, like just making yourself feel comfortable. And the only way you can feel more comfortable is by actually doing it and continuing to practice. Okay. So one of the key components then is this jobs to be done interview. And you had Bob Mester like helping you with interviews for the industry conference. So let's go into some of the detail on this, because I think being able to kind of start launch your jobs to be done um practice with the interview seems like the best place to to start so how is the jobs to be done interview different to a user research interview and what what are you really trying to get to like what and, and what do you need before you start as well sorry so many questions all thrown I love it ones. no <laughs> and they're they're great yeah I mean the way that we think about it and the way that you know, when we went through these initial interviews, um, first of all, approaching the interview, right? There's there's preparation involved, just like user interview for sure. I mean, I think one of the things that, um, and this is something I think can help no matter what kind of user interview you're doing, but actually not just scheduling the interview itself, but blocking the time in the before and the after. Um, it's, it's almost like the warm up and the cool down, so to speak, is really important. It, it, beforehand, it's, it's not even that you're reviewing a script. Um, there actually isn't necessarily a, like a script to use for a jobs to be done interview. But if you have certain hypotheses, I think it's important to get those down. It might frame some of the questions that you'll start to ask. Um, I also like putting literally on a piece of paper. I mean, people could do this differently, but literally identifying, you know, sort of push the pull anxiety, inertia and struggling moment, almost like right in front of me. So that as things are coming out of a conversation, I might, and, and by the way, there might be multiple of these things depending on the type of product you're talking about, but I like noting them down if I'm starting to hear a push or hear a pull. And I know we didn't get into the, the specifics on those, but that's what separates a just regular user research interview from a jobs to be done interview is identifying what all of those things actually are. So you could go through a regular user research interview um, for, a, for a different purpose, by the way, right? And not necessarily ask questions that would uncover those things um, for good reason too. It's that m maybe wasn't the purpose of, of your specific interview. But if you can come out of the interview identifying, you know, in this situation, what was the push? What was the pull? What is that struggling moment that the person had in this uh, specific case? Um, that's what we're trying to uncover. Um, and I think when you come out of one interview, the challenge is, it isn't apparent what you do next. You know, you might have that one interview and you and you are work hard to identify all of those things. And then by the way, you're identifying those things by going so deep in the interview. This is where Bob taught us where I like we went through one interview with Bob and I'm like, I've been doing this completely wrong the entire time because Bob told us to think about it like we're documentary filmmakers. We are literally trying to shoot a documentary about this specific user and we need to know the backstory. And before with with uh, user interviews that I would do, you know, I'd ask questions and I think I'm digging. But really, you know, again, if you're to ask the question, are, if you're shooting a documentary, is this enough? The answer was no, I wasn't digging in nearly enough. I might ask a question about, OK, why? And so why did you why did you come to the conference? They'd say, well, I want to learn from the best product people and, and meet other people and find inspiration. And I would. OK, great. Um, so moving on, you know, no, no Bob said, oh, find inspiration. What does inspiration mean to you? What is inspiration? And he'd spend 
10 minutes on inspiration, right? So I think that that's the other big thing about these interviews is just how deep you have to go to really uncover those things. Um, and again, one interview might not un, you might not come out knowing what to do, but even if you do five interviews, that's again, five is not necessarily statistically significant. It's not necessarily a magic number, but I'm just speaking from us. We did those first five interviews. We started to see some common patterns emerge. It was enough for us to at least then start to dig deep in a couple specific areas. And, um, and I like from those areas, there were some simple changes we made, like marketing copy, but then there's some big, like delighter type features that we introduced that were because of those first initial interviews. Um, and we wouldn't have found them. I mean, again, there's other conferences out there that they're probably much smarter than me. These are people that might've come up with these automatically, but I wouldn't have been able to uh, come up with some of these delighters that we came up with if it wasn't for some of these early interviews we did. Okay. So I really want to dig into how to do a good interview and, and those key moments that you talked about, uh, push, pull, inertia, key moments, struggling moments, some of those terms. Yeah. Uh, let's get into that. But one question first, because it sounds like these interviews are intense. And how long does Bob or, or do you schedule for one of these? It sounds like it might be a lot longer than our normal user research interviews. Yeah. So, and, you know, people might have their own preference in the past, I would schedule interviews for like 20 minutes, maybe a half an hour. And the reason for that is our, our users are busy. Our customers are busy, right? Like there's not enough time in the day. Bob pushed us to schedule them for an hour. So we would literally block out an hour of time just for the interview and then figure another half an hour uh, for the pre-work and another half hour for the post-work review. So that's two hours that you're blocking off for a one hour interview with one user. And um, that, I mean, again, maybe... Maybe you've done those interviews as an hour long every time. I would be scared to ask my users in the past for a full hour of their time. Um, but that's what we would do. And then because exactly the point you brought up, you, you end up going so deep. You end up um, asking questions that almost feel like you are uh, being obtrusive or, or, you know, digging too deep with them. Like it definitely feels uncomfortable, but, but that's the reason you need to uncover information that you wouldn't have found otherwise. If you don't understand how people are using your site or product, you're leaving money on the table. Don't leave money on the table, Randy. That's a waste. But I'm American, Lily. I leave tips. I think maybe we're both being a bit too literal here, Randy. <laughs> yeah, fair, tough, but fair. Let's be honest here, though. Traditional analytics alone for your website or product just won't tell you the full story. And Hotjar's behavior analytics tool lets you see how people experience your site or product and gives your users a voice. Eliminate the guesswork. Use Hotjar to understand how users experience and interact with your product so you can make the changes that matter most. Try Hotjar for free today at hotjar.com MTP. Okay, so let's talk about those key things. So you mentioned, uh, I think, four specific terms that you're looking for to try. And I think these are the things that help you make a good interview. So you mentioned push, pull, inertia, and key or struggling moment. What are each of those things? Yeah, so and it's really five when you when you include that struggling moment. So there's the yeah. the push, the pull, anxiety, inertia, um, and then there's that struggling moment. So the and the struggling moment. I guess I'll start there because I feel like when you're able to identify what the struggling moment is, I mean that's sort of the root of 
of any sort of innovation we can come up with. Uh, the way I like to describe it is if you are familiar with watching those like late night infomercials and usually they're like hawking some sort of product we we most people don't really need. Maybe it's like the ultimate cereal bowl and you know it's like this cereal bowl will never spill your milk and the way that they show the person handling it they're like you know pouring the cereal in the bowl and the milk and it's and the milk's going everywhere and they're like ah i wish i wish there was a better way that i wish there was a better way like that's the struggling moment personified that is that that's how i like to think of it anyway so we're trying to dig first of all with when it comes to users that are buying our products um or maybe they're not even buying our products yet but they have they have this problem um that maybe our products can solve for maybe not um that I'm trying to identify that. What is that struggling moment for them? Um, th so the push and the pull, if you want to think of it as a timeline, sort of the push and the pull, um, think of like a, a an arrow, but there's two arrows. You know, it's like one line with two arrows on one end, right? Or on both ends. The push is sort of where it gets started to go to the other side. And so, you know, you're starting off at the current situation. The current situation for the customer is, it sucks. They have this problem, whatever it is. And that pushes the realization that, okay, I'm feeling this struggling moment. I need to find something different. What current situation is just not working. The pull is when you start to hear of this potential solution. I, you know, I'll revert it back like a few years ago when I was that product person um, in that ticketing company, Slack, right? Like I remember thinking, I remember hearing about Slack I remember feeling buried in meetings, buried in emails. And so that feeling was the push for me, um, wanting to find some sort of other solution out there. But the pull is when I started to hear people talk about Slack, you know, or you see an e e some sort of news article about Slack is the email killer and Slack is going to kill meetings. And, you know, it's the next best thing. And that's the pull. Like I'm starting to hear about this potential solution. I'm like, I, I want a life without emails and meetings. Like, let me have that. Um, and so if it just went straight forward, like you just get to the end solution. It's like, I buy Slack for my company and we're all a lot happier and we all have no meetings now. Um, but that's where anxiety and inertia comes in. The anxiety is where you start to sort of question that, you know, in my mind for me, it was like, well, okay, but how, how would this work? So if I were to, if I were to try to get this for my company, um, do I have, will I be expected to train everybody? Will I be the one to go out and try to convince the executives? Like, this is the right tool for us. Like, that sounds like a lot of work. Inertia brings you all the way back. If you get to inertia, like it's pretty much stopped right there. That's like when you've made the call in your mind, like, this is just too complicated. I'll just stick with what we've been doing. It's just not going to work. So it's important for us to identify all those things. When I think about the jobs we've done interviews that we did with our users, it's trying to figure out, you know, okay, ultimately these people came to the conference, but did they get to the, did they experience that anxiety? Did they almost get to the inertia phase? And if they did, why did they get there? What got them there? Um, it, because those are, that's when we can start to think of, okay, is it just simple marketing changes that might've alleviated some of that anxiety? Or is it that, no, we need to introduce brand new features um, that are important that can actually make sure that the person is never going to get to that sort of inertia phase. Um, so yeah, those are the, those are the key things to learn. I, I'm, you know, again, I'm sure there's full textbooks out there about all sorts of other things, but I think at the basic level to get started, it's just understanding those things and understanding how you could put together a, a, you know, well-run interview and you can already start 
to get some insights right out of there. I, there's certainly a lot more to learn, but I think just learning those key areas first gets you at least what you need to just sort of get started in those interviews. And you mentioned before about the the digging really deep into the story, the backstory and everything. And like interviews can be a little bit intimidating anyway, if you know they don't come kind of naturally to you or you're feeling a bit anxious about it yourself. So <laughs> then when you're trying to sort of dig really into someone's, you know, motives and, and, you know, really what's going on, that can be a little bit anxiety inducing as well as the interviewer. Um, you know, how do we get confident at, at doing these types of interviews and really going deep enough that we uncover the push and the pull and the anxiety and inertia? What's really helped me was and I'm going to say this sort of like this is uh, metaphorically speaking, but like sitting on the same side of the table with the person as I'm interviewing them. So I don't mean physically, but I mean, literally even starting the interview with saying, by the way, in these interviews, um, you know, we're, I'm going to ask questions that you might not be expecting. Every answer is a right answer. And, you know, some of these questions like I'm really trying to dig in deep with you, but it's because we want to, you know, we want to actually learn, like we want to get back. So it's, it's almost like setting the stage for like, there might be questions coming at you that you might not expect. There might be questions that, I mean, I even gave the uh, documentary filmmaker analogy in these interviews and, you know, mm-hmm. people, it's, it's a lighthearted kind of thing, but it sort of just sets the expectation for them that, okay, this is going to be something that, you know, they're going to ask me all sorts of questions. They might go deep. Whereas if I didn't really, if I just sort of went right into it in the beginning, I think there might be even more, you know, uncomfortability from their side. Um, From my side, I was still uncomfortable in these interviews, especially at first. So that's where I just feel like the more, it's like with anything else, the more you do, the more comfortable you get with these interviews. So um, I don't know that there's a magic answer on that one, but that's, that's what really helped me. Practice, I guess. So uh, you talked about, uh, you know, I know it's controversial how many interviews is the right number. So let's just go with five. We'll do a whole nother episode about the, the right number of interviews. <laughs> but if one of them is just totally out there and gives you something totally different than everything else, what do you do with that kind of outlier? Yeah. I, so first of all, I would be grateful that you're getting it because on one hand, Maybe it's the root of something that is so unique that like wouldn't have come up otherwise. And now you have something you could start to dig into. Um, it also might just be an outlier, right? And I, when we're scheduling these interviews, actually the only guidance that Bob gave us in terms of the types of people to talk to is just make sure that you're not talking to customers that are complete outliers as a customer, like not even just as insights, but, but as a customer. So for us, um, you know, at our conference, that are product managers generally come to the conference, but also product leaders. But, you know, so if I'm doing an interview, make whether it's a director of product or a VP of product or product manager, that's all great. Um, if I'm going to interview a, we, we had somebody at our conference come in where, you know, they're, they were really m- managing the restaurant experience for a, for a large chain restaurant. And it wasn't software at all. It was, literally the restaurant experience, but they came in knowing that they were like, I wanted to draw analogs from the software world to my work. And that's great. I might stay away from that specific person um, in an interview like this, because it is kind of an outlier customer. We don't, we don't really have a, we don't have a big market for restaurant experience professionals um, at our conference at industry. So in terms of setting up the interviews, I would say that's one thing to think about for outliers. When you're talking about outlier insights, I actually love outlier insights. This is just my own personal opinion, but I think they they could be the root of 
more interviews that you set up. Like if you get something that's so kind of out there and unique, I wouldn't necessarily take that and run with those insights and start sort of implementing things. But what I might do is set up a few more interviews. If you know, you're thinking like, Hey, there could be something here, set up more interviews to dive deep on that with other people. And if it's a situation where, um, you're asking questions and gosh, you know what? Some, some more insights are coming up that are, you're seeing some common patterns that you weren't necessarily expecting. You might be uncovering something that could be golden. Um, if you don't, then that's, you know, like worst case scenarios, you're going to, you're going to invalidate maybe that the, I mean, not that that feedback that they were giving isn't useful, but that it just might not be so widespread with most of your customer base. Um, so that's kind of how I look at outliers, both from an insights perspective and a, um, you know, just kind of choosing who we are going to interview and get involved in the process in the first place. And what's your process for reviewing or pulling out the themes and the insights from the interviews themselves? Yeah. So, you know, there's a few people that would be, I mean, look, we have a really small team, right? But if I'm, I'm thinking back to when I was on a pro- true product team, there's a few people that could be involved in this pro- in the entire process. So I'll kind of even back it up to even before that review process. Um, I, you know, I think naturally you could have a user experience or product person actually giving this interview. I actually like having two people as that are actually a part of the interview. And one person is specifically taking notes. Even if you record the interview, I think having taking the notes that are sort of fresh in the moment um, can be really helpful in that, in that post interview phase, when you're reviewing things. Um, another reason why I really like that is that people, people can interpret things a little bit differently. So in the review for us, um, you know, it was me, you know, I'm conducting these interviews at the time, Bob was there as well. So we kind of had a third, um, but we also had my partner, Paul. And so there's the, the three of us, I would say in a normal situation, it'd be at least the, the two of us that are going through and reviewing things and sort of point by point, like what, you know, Hey, my interpretation of the push, the pull, the insight the, or the, uh, the inertia, the anxiety, it was these things. This is the struggling moment I pulled out of it. Um, and I noted all those down as did my partner. Like we wanted to kind of compare notes and not just say, Hey, I got this. Did you? And it's like, yeah, I got those things. No, we wanted to sort of independently note all of those things down. And then afterwards sort of like cards up, do we have the same things here? And let's talk about that. And in some cases, again, like I'm getting certain insights that maybe Paul wouldn't have and vice versa. Um, so in that review process, you know, that's kind of how we're looking at it immediately after the interview. Um, but then what, right? So for us, you know, I like keeping these in a, in a safe place, you know, for us, it's just simple drive folder where we have all of the notes from that interview. Um, and then all the interviews. And so once we've done a few of these interviews, I'm going back and looking at all the notes. I'm looking at all the things that sort of emerged, um, and seeing, are there common patterns that exist? And again, we kind of have that same type of meeting where there's the two of us and I'm kind of coming up with what I see some common patterns emerging and same with Paul. And then again, cards up and we're kind of comparing there. Um, and, and then we have to figure out, okay, like these interviews, it's only going to be as good as whatever we do with them. So is there anything here to actually like take the ball and run? Or do we need to start digging in on, um, you know, continuing to dig in and actually conduct more interviews because we feel like we're not at that point, uh, not at that point quite yet. And and you could absolutely be at that point. For us, even with five interviews, there are a couple common things that we saw emerge where we felt like we, we can actually make some changes right now, start to introduce some things right now. And so we did. Um, but that's how that's how we approach sort of the review after interviewing a uh, one of our customers. And I guess kind of following on from that, 
what about the the job stories or like the next phase of implementing or using the jobs to be done framework? Yeah, I love I mean, so for me, I'm still I'm in that phase now where I'm continuing to learn about the things that I didn't know before. So, you know, using job stories in lieu of user stories. And there's a whole lot with jobs that I think you could. It's one of the things I like, like that you can continue to explore. My my recommendation for people is to definitely check out all of that. But but to get started, I think the more that we try to learn also the there's sort of the good and the bad. The good is there's a lot to learn. And so we can all have fun learning it. But the bad is um, sometimes for some people, it almost seems overwhelming. So the more that we try to take in early, it's like, well, but now, wait, now there's job stories. Like, what do I need to include the job stories during these? It's like, let's just get started, get started with the basics, understand the basics. Once you're up and running, there is a whole nother world. Like to your, to your point with job stories, you know, Maybe they're a great alternative to user stories that people can start to use um, in the getting started phase, which frankly, that again, that's kind of the the phase that I feel like we should all be really comfortable with first. Um, I like keeping it super simple, but I, I do love that there's a lot more to learn about it. So no tool is perfect. No tool should be used all the time. And we talked a little bit earlier about how uh, sometimes you see Twitter flame wars about jobs to be done for everything. Jobs to be done is awful. And it's just another tool that we use. So the question is, when is this really useful? What is the problem that's all for us? And alternatively, when should we not be using this? When is this absolutely the wrong tool? Yeah. I, I, and I think this is like, this is a question that we can probably answer in our own personal experiences, like with experience. My point of view on it is that there, I don't believe that there are distinct experiences that are just perfectly wrong for a jobs to be done. On the other hand, I don't think that jobs to be done is the, is a magic bullet. Uh, to me, I think what we have to look at it is just like I use jobs to be done to learn about how people use our products. I'm also using other things. It's sort of like NPS. You know, people kind of have these Twitter flame wars about NPS and how useful it is or isn't, but it's another tool. So my point of view is if we have this tool bag with lots of tools and we know how to actually use the tools, which by the way, I go into my basement. I don't know how to use half the tools that are in my basement to actually fix stuff in my house. I wish I did. But if, if I did, I would feel a lot more confident about fixing things around the house. I kind of think that that's, it's like once we get familiar with using these different tools, we'll be in a situation and we'll have a sense for what might work best in one specific situation. I don't think it's as simple to say, oh, in a, um, when it's a physical product, it can't be jobs and it should be this other way or vice versa. It's, it's more about being familiar with these processes, being more comfortable using them and sort of figuring that out on your own. I think it's sort of a personal thing. And um, I did a quick shout out on LinkedIn to see if anyone had any specific concerns or qualms about starting with jobs to be done. And um, we had a couple of people, so Guido Lanetti and Jordan Lamban, both kind of contributing to the conversation, asking generally around this sort of argument around jobs as progress and jobs as activities, and that it's kind of confusing, like where to start. But it sounds like the best place to start is just with that jobs to be done interview and uncovering the the push, the pull, the anxiety and the inertia and really getting to that struggling moment. And once you've done that, that's like, uh, then you see the value of this framework. 
That's my my opinion is just keep it simple to get started and and yeah. don't don't make it overly complex. Um, and because sometimes I think those complexities, that's at least for me, that's what prevented me from getting started. You know, that those things, not understanding everything is what held me back. Um, but it's sort of like math, like you don't need to understand calculus to just start adding, you know, learning addition and subtraction and you start there and you can, and by the way, if you just knew addition and subtraction, there, there are a lot of things in life that you can do, right? So it's just understanding some of the basics at first. Um, that's why I don't, I don't, um, position myself as a jobs expert by any means. I'm just somebody that's figured out how to get started with it and sort of start to see some benefits come out of it. Um, and I'm continuing to learn, you know, how I can go deeper and go further. Um, but in order to, to really get started, you just have to focus on the basics and keep it simple and not let yourself get too bogged down. I mean, there's, there's a lot you can do and a lot you can learn. I think that's all great, but if you haven't gotten started with it yet, I would say focus on the basics. Awesome. Mike, it's been so great speaking to you and top marks for doing an interview with a small child crawling around behind you and not getting distracted at all. I, I could hear it. I could hear it and I could feel it. I could feel it. But I, was, I was just sort of letting it fly. Oh, no, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Randy and Lily. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. So, Randy, what's our hypothesis about why listeners might not be able to get started even after that amazing episode? Well, hmm. I guess they could tell themselves there's not enough time to do long research interviews. Yeah, or they could be feeling anxious if they're new to interviewing. So what feature can we add, you know, to, to help them? Um... How about we give them a shout out at the next episode for successfully implementing Mike's advice? Gamification. I love it. Okay, if you follow through on the advice of this episode, tweet us or, you know, ping us on LinkedIn and we'll give you a virtual high five of congratulations. A virtual high five. The best kind. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm-hmm.